my baby, it's me. I'm driving to work. If I don't talk to you, I'll just talk to you this evening when I get off. It'll be late. So I love you very much, and I will talk to you later. Love you. Bye. Hi, my name is Jack Parnell. I'm the Emotional Orphan. I'd like to welcome you to the Social Yet Distance podcast, where we'll tackle topics such as poetry, literature, small press, uh, book releases, politics, mental health, a whole wide variety of topics, just about anything. And we look forward to you coming and visiting with us on a weekly basis. We hope to have one, two, or three podcasts a week up. And, uh, to get a YouTube channel going in conjunction with it. So we look forward to seeing you. Thanks for joining us on the Social Yet Distance podcast. Here's a piece from the uh, Giorno Dial of Poems collection on Ubu Web. That's Yoko Ono's website with lots of uh, royalty-free poetry and sounds and video. You might want to check it out. It's U-B-U Web. This is William S. Burroughs. My name is Clem Snide. And Mr. Hart couldn't hear the word death. The name is Clem Snide. I am a private asshole. As a private investigator, I run into more death than the law allows. I mean the law of averages. Yes, routine case of industrial sabotage and the factory blows up, killing 23 people. Well, these things happen. I am a man of the world, going to and fro and walking up and down in it. Now, death smells. I mean, death has a special smell, over and above the smell of cyanide, cordite, blood, carrion, or burnt flesh. It's a gray smell. It stops the heart and cuts off the breath. Smell of the empty body, smell of field hospitals and gangrene. I got a whiff of it when Mr. Green walked into my office. Now, Ernest Hemingway could smell it on others, too. Here he is in a jeep with General Lanham, known as Bucky to his friends. And Ernie was a real general lover. (laughs) It's worse than being a cop lover. Well, here they are, and he's returning from the front line where uh, Major Jones was in charge. Have to relieve that man, says Bucky. Bucky, says Ernie, you won't have to relieve him. He won't make it. He stinks of death. When the jeep reached regimental command post, it was stopped by Lieutenant Colonel John Ruggles. Uh, General, said Ruggles, saluting, the Major has just been killed. Uh, who takes the first battalion? <clears throat> uh, well, Mr. Hart isn't trying to be a nice guy any longer. It is, he decides, uphill and rather unrewarding work. Mr. Hart sets out to be death. He learns to kill through his newspapers. 
and he teaches his editors the tricks as they crawl up his ladder. Now you just move this tenement pile over here and burn some more niggers. Chuckling over roasted babies, car accidents, and riots like a southern lawman feeling his nigger notches. Mr. Hart has to be inhuman because humans are mortal. And Mr. Hart is addicted to immortality. He's addicted to an immortality predicated on the mortality of others. Gooks, niggers, wogs, human dogs. And feeling his own contempt for these apes affords him a mineral calm. He's addicted to a certain brain frequency. A little high blue note feels so good that feeling he can just swim in it forever and ever. And this cool blue frequency comes from making hands tremble and sweat. And feeling the dear meritorious poor wriggle and slobber under his boots. For making people ugly and grind in their faces and from knowing and squash an editor like a bug and seeing his editor know it. You see the action, BJ, this old searching tycoon with this uh, dark side to his character. <clears throat> Mr. Hart, death will not serve a stranger who cannot prove his title, a gringo who fears the very word and sets up a house rule that the word death may not be pronounced in his presence. Hey, look at all them dead bodies. Audrey points with his left hand as virus B-23. Surfacing from remote seas of past time, rages through cities of the world like a topping forest fire. Last take, Mr. Hart's deserted, ruined mansion, graffiti on the walls. Apuk was here. Here lived a stupid, vulgar son of a bitch who thought he could hire death as a company cop. From the TELUS collection on UbuWeb, this song was a sample from the Butthole Surfers, U-S-S-A. Now we're going to hear from Fran Locke reading a poem uh, from her new collection, Hyena. Um, I'll do a piece myself, and then we'll jump into some of the Dial-A-Poem series from UbuWeb as well. We're going to hear from Ann Waldman doing Pressure and Holy City, Ted Bergen from the Sonnets, Frank O'Hara, Ode to Joy to Hell with It, Heathcote Williams, I Will Not Pay Taxes Until, 
and then we'll close it out with Man Ray, an interview with Man Ray, because not all poetry is poems. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope you enjoy the show. How the cold was clear treacle, the fox's fickle stealth across my path was you, and the musky bravado of closing time. It is hurting less and less, she said. One year pain assumes a sleekness, perfume worn by widows, the morning glows discreetly. There will be nights when all my mighty talk has narrowed into prattle, and I am sliding down the smooth blank snatch of the dark and wishing your splayed hand tangling again. For now the light is blue, refusal sharp, and I may think of you, azured to a staring match with heron pond or sky. The heart's glad heave at last, at least, briefest blue, the way a virgin's eye perfects its knowing silent smile, taste ice, and think of you. The Social Yet Distanced is sponsored by The Emotional Orphan in the form of production support. We hope that you'll continue to help us grow the show through the purchase of merchandise at Redbubble or some books or broadsides at Gum Road. You can find links on our anchor page and on all our social media. Thanks. People are like meat. The Emotional Orphan, 2010 Redux. People are like meat. A story, overexposed, one-sided vulnerability from a guy familiar with being a part of a collection. One of many moving parts. A piece of meat, part of a meal, offering no substance. Nothing for sustenance. The object of his affection, the American dream, knows that he is there in case she gets ravenous, but willing to do her part in order to make sure that the meat doesn't spoil. <laughs> meat can be replaced by any grocer, butcher, slaughter whore, house. All neighborhoods have them. Meat requires minimal attention, just a cool, dark place like a spot in her mind or the dark where her heart once was. Flesh is extremely important to her. She needs him. She wants him, or maybe just his unshakable faith. She cares enough to consider his feelings before a decision is made. Because meat is moody, you know, like people who crave being wanted and needed. They can always expose themselves, wait to be thrown on a grill, char-broiled and devoured as a weekend ritual. When you're up to your neck in Maronite, even if you placed yourself there, it enhances the flavor. Spicy sense of self-importance, the defensive salt used the most knows nothing about the flavor of life which, or which fucking plate to serve it on. I know that it requires a knife, but can I be trusted? Stewing in my own juices, I feed off of myself. But if I really get hungry, I'll become vegetarian.
pressure. When I see you climb the walls, I climb them too. Mud hole. No way out of the telephone booth, the classroom, the VW bus, the igloo. No way out of the Quonset hut, the tea for two, the greenhouse, the waterproof tent, the motel room, the split-level ranch house, the hacienda, the chalet, the icy castle, the formidable mountain, the haunted house, the 747, the rickety porch, the lazy afternoon, my mother's house, your sister's house, the hospital ward, the clothes hamper. No way out of Chicago or Cleveland or Detroit. No way out of the 60-story office building, the church, the temple, the Long Island Railroad Station, the A train, the D train, the BMT, the 9th Street Crosstown bus, the rain, the seven-inch snow piling up outside my window, the refreshingly hot shower. No way out of the pool room, the bowling alley, the noisy bar, the enormous bathtub, the Chinese restaurant, the delicatessen, the department store, the trolley. No way out of the desert, off the Alp, out of the tunnel, out of the river, the lake, the ocean, the bay, off the skis, out of the arena, out of the spotlight, the movie theater, the motion picture screen. No way out of the barn, the farm, the chicken coop, the stable, the hayloft. No way out of the doctorate, the BA, the MA, the tool shed, the library, my sneakers. No way out of Africa, no way off the Jeep, the circus, the rodeo, the Donizetti opera, La Fille du Regiment. No escape from Joan Sutherland's astounding voice or the barking dogs chasing the deer, weakened from a long winter. No escape from the guitar or the cello or the harpsichord. No escape from the mailman, the endless mail. No way out of the stationery store, the print shop, the newspaper office, the glossy IBM retail showroom on William Street, the poker game, the family dinner, the cocktail party, the birthday celebration. No way out of Christmas, off New Year's, out of Philadelphia, Texas, Reason, PA. No way out of the sleeping bag, no way, no way. No way out of the celery patch, the organic vegetable garden, the ancient forest, the deep ravine, the glistening valley, the starry night, the Louvre, the Met, the numerous art galleries of New York City and LA, the simple chat, the zoo, no escape, the coat hangers, no escape, the history of Russia, no escape, China, Japan, the history of music, no escape, the voices of the pygmies singing in the rainforest, Gamelon, Mozart's legacy, and Satie's. No way out of prison, no way off progress, off collapse. No way out of the White House or the Senate or the Capitol. No way, no way. No way out of money, even when you're out of it. No way out of whippoorwills, swallows, gulls, the swimming pool, bellows falls. The great chain of being, no escape. The magnetic field, no escape. The continental shelf, no escape. The Great Barrier Reef, no escape, no escape. The Piper Cub, no return. The next acceptance speech, no return. The last hurrah, the middle age. No way out of TV, no way off Mars. The moon, the sun's radiant energy, no way, no way. No way out of structural anthropology, or brain chemistry, or painkillers, or pain. No way off pleasure, the rainbow, no escape. The cab rod, no escape. The World Trade Center, no escape. The Amazon, no escape. Escape. Amazing grace, no escape. Autumn, no escape. My window, no escape. And midnight, stubborn midnight, no escape. No return, no way off. No way out of midnight. Black midnight, deep midnight. Now coaxing midnight, gentle midnight, no escape.
And the day is bright gray, turning green, feminine, marvelous, and tough, watching the sun come up over the Navy Yard to write scotch tape body in a notebook. Had 17 and a half milligrams. Dear Margie, hello. It's 5.15 a.m. Fuck till seven, now she's late to work, and I'm 18, so why are my hands shaking? I should know better. I wake up, back aching from soft bed. Pat gone to class, Ron to work. I never heard a sound, it's my birthday. I put on birthday pants, birthday shirt, go to Adam's, buy a Pepsi for breakfast, come home, drink it, take a pill, I'm high. I do three Greek lessons to make up for cutting class. I read birthday book from Joe on Juan Gris, real name, Jose Victoriano Gonzalez. Stop in the middle, read all my poems, gloat a little over new ballad, quickly skip old sonnets, imitations of Shakespeare. Back to books. I read poems by Auden, Spencer, Pound, Stevens, and Frank O'Hara. I hate books. <laughs> I wonder if Jan or Helen or Babe ever think about me. I wonder if David Bearden still dislikes me. I wonder if people talk about me secretly. I wonder if I'm too old. I wonder if I'm fooling myself about pills. I wonder what's in the icebox. I wonder if Ron or Pat bought any toilet paper this morning. This is number 36, and it's more or less an imitation of Frank O'Hara. More or less than more. It's 8.54 a.m. in Brooklyn. It's the 28th of July, and it's probably 8.54 in Manhattan, but I'm in Brooklyn. I'm eating English muffins and drinking Pepsi, and I'm thinking of how Brooklyn is New York City, too. How odd I usually think of it as something all its own, like Bell's Falls, like Little Shoot, like Weejan Boo. I never thought on the Williamsburg Bridge that I'd come so much to Brooklyn just to see lawyers and cops who don't even carry guns taking my wife away and bringing her back. No, and I never thought Dick would be back at Goods, beard shaved off, long hair cut, and Carol reading his books when we were playing cribbage and watching the sun come up over the Navy Yard across the river. I think I was thinking when I was ahead, I'd be somewhere like Perry Street, erudite, dazzling, slim, and badly loved, contemplating my new book of poems to be printed in simple type on old brown paper, feminine, marvelous, and tough. The Social Yet Distanced is sponsored by The Emotional Orphan in the form of production support. We hope that you'll continue to help us grow the show through the purchase of merchandise at Redbubble or some books or broadsides at Gum Road. You can find links on our anchor page and on all our social media. Thanks. Ode to Joy. We shall have everything we want, and there'll be no more dying on the pretty plains or in the supper clubs. For our symbol will acknowledge vulgar materialistic laughter over an insatiable sexual appetite, and the streets will be filled with racing forms, and the photographs of murderers and narcissists and movie stars will swell from the walls and books alive in steaming rooms to press against our burning flesh, not once but interminably, as water flows downhill into the full-lipped basin, and the adder dives for the ultimate ostrich egg, and the feather cushion preens beneath a reclining monolith that's sweating with post-exertion visibility and sweetness near the grave of love. No more dying. We shall see the grave of love as a lovely sight and temporary near the elm that spells the lovers' names in roots. And there'll be no more music but the ears and lips, and no more wit but tongues and ears, and no more drums but ears to thighs 
as evening signals nudities unknown to ancestors' imaginations. And the imagination itself will stagger like a tired paramour of ivory under the sculptural necessities of lust that never falters, like a six-mile runner from Sweden or Liberia covered with gold. As lava flows up and over the far-down somnolent city's abdication and the hermit always wanting to be lone is lone at last, and the weight of external heat crushes the heat-hating Puritan, whose self-defeating vice becomes a proper sepulchre at last that love may live. Buildings will go up into the dizzy air as love itself goes in and up the reeling life that it has chosen for once or all while in the sky a feeling of intemperate fondness will excite the birds to swoop and veer like flies crawling across absorbed limbs that weep a pearly perspiration on the sheets of brief attention and the hairs dry out that summon anxious declaration of the organs as they rise like buildings to the needs of temporary neighbors pouring hunger through the heart to feed desire in intravenous ways like the ways of gods with humans in the innocent combination of light and flesh or as the legends ride their heroes through the dark to found great cities where all life is possible to maintain as long as time, which wants us to remain for cocktails in a bar and after dinner lets us live with it. No more dying. The next poem is called To Hell With It. And the actual occasion of the poem is not that two friends of mine died, but obviously it was in the back of my mind, if not the front, when I wrote it. And I think that probably after the initial shock, death makes me angrier rather than sadder as a, an event. To hell with it. Hungry winter this winter. Meaningful hints at dismay, to be touched, to see labeled as such. Perspicacious Colette and Vladimirovich meet with sickness and distress. It is because of sunspots on the sun. I clean it off with an old sock and go on. And blonde Gregory dead in fallout on a highway with his Broadway wife, the last of the Lafayettes. How I hate subject matter, melancholy intruding on the vigorous heart, the soul telling itself you haven't suffered enough, yellow miel, and all things that don't change, photographs, monuments, memories of Bunny and Gregory and me in costume bowing to each other in the audience like jinxes, Nothing now can be changed as, last crying, no tears will dry, and Bunny will never change her writing of the bear, nor Greg bear me any further gift beyond liking my poems, no new poems for him, and a big red railroad handkerchief from the country in his sports car, so like another actor. For sentiment is always intruding on form, the immaculate disgust of the mind, beaten down by pain and the vileness of life's flickering disapproval, Endless torment, pretending to be the rose of acknowledgement, courage, and fruitless absolution, hence the word hip, to be cool, decisive, precise, yes, while the barn door hits you in the face each time you get up, because the wind, seeing you slim and gallant, rises to embrace its darling poet. It thinks I'm mysterious. All diseases are exchangeable. Wind, you'll have a terrible time smothering my clarity, a void behind my eyes, into which existence continues to stuff its wounded limbs as I make room for them on one after another filthy page of poetry. This was sent to Her Majesty's Inspector of Taxes this year, together with his own, his request for £700 back tax.
I will not pay taxes until we are no longer syphilized by the holy bourgeois family in the Buckingham Palace ghetto. I will not pay taxes until there are 600 million blacks in England, or twice as many as England has exploited, whichever number is greater, and none of them speaking the Queen's cricket. I will not pay taxes until I have floated a helium-filled balloon screen above the psychic brothels of Pentonville, Brixton Prison and Wormwood Scrubs, and projected onto it I am curious yellow flaming creatures, folk filth and Trixie knows the score. I will not pay taxes until the patients at the Putney Home for Incurables hold a deeply personal shit-in in Carnaby Street and the King's Road and smash sexual elitism. I will not pay taxes until I have sexually possessed all the people that Death TV and the advertisements seduce me into thinking that I own in order to keep me watching. I will not pay taxes until British officials stop chewing Ian Smith's clitoris and, which, and switch their affiliations to Neoplatonic Biafra. I will not pay taxes until banks come off the gold standard and onto the vibration standard and unfreeze my assets. I will not pay taxes until the Ministry of Defence is floodlit from the inside with cement. I will not pay taxes, Mr Tax Inspector, until you lend me your bank account for a week. I will not pay taxes until traffic noise contains information. I will not pay taxes until May West has been commissioned to rewrite the marriage service and until the minimum number of parties to the contract is 700 and not two. I will not pay taxes until Ecdyson and Anabolics, the hormone elixirs, are given away free with old age pensions. I will not pay taxes until the church stops cooking babies in lukewarm water without their consent. I will not pay taxes until literary fame and copyright is smashed and literature becomes the dangerous little service organisation it once was. I will not pay taxes until there are houses that squirt out of aerosol cans whenever I'm tired. I will not pay taxes until a Mongolian clusterfuck has been performed in the Old Bailey, the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace and reverse the negative charge therein. I will not pay taxes until incest and suicide are given Arts Council grants. I will not pay taxes until TV is a two-way process and the whole world is on television and every TV has a joystick and you can steer your TV at whatever news you want instead of it being decided by elitist consortiums and informed meth spirits drinkers. I will not pay taxes until economists stop economising love. I will not pay taxes until the Insect Trust and the Motherfuckers and the Armed Love Conspiracy are given 500 hoardings on the way to London Airport in which to publicise the unofficial environment. I will not pay taxes until all vested interests are up in lights. I will not pay taxes until there are audiovisual and olfactory helmets on overhead rails in the streets filled with beautiful images and smells for pedestrians to plug down. I was treated as belonging to the whole community and the mother-child fetish is dismantled. I will not pay taxes until the more royal mint produces an auto-destructive coinage which melts or explodes in your pocket to prevent hoarding from whence all economics ills arise. I will not pay taxes until there is full unemployment. I will not pay taxes until toilets are desegregated. I will not pay taxes until everyone is famous and there are no more psychic capitalists. I will not pay taxes until TV stops transmitting images which are hocus-pocus and starts transmitting states of being. I will not pay taxes until there is a burning gat on Charing Cross Pier and the city is pervaded with the fumes from charred flesh and sandalwood which is a cheap aphrodisiac as in Benares and God knows our city needs one. I will not pay taxes until my friends who mesh with the system and pay taxes are allowed to earmark whatever sums of money they pay for problems, bombs and freak shows of their own choice. I will not pay taxes until I have invented a pacifist toy which is as sexually satisfying as a gun. 
I will not pay taxes until the state has given me five tastes of utopia. I will not pay taxes until I get a cocaine flash in my astral taste buds in every London street. Sent by free post to Her Majesty's Inspector of Taxes, February the 17th, 1970. An object is a result of looking at something which in itself has no quality or charm. I pick something which in itself has no meaning at all. I disregard completely the aesthetic quality of the object. I'm against craftsmanship. I say the world is full of wonderful craftsmen, but there are very few practical dreamers. In the early days in Paris, when I first came over, and I passed by a hardware shop and I saw a flat iron in the window, I said, there's an object which is almost invisible. Maybe I could do something with that. What could I do is to add something in it that was provocative. So I got a box of tacks. I glued on a row of tacks to it to make it useless, as I thought. But nothing is really useless. You can always find a useless, even for the most extravagant object. Here at The Social Yet Distanced, we sincerely hope that you enjoyed the art that we share tonight. It's kind of what we do. And we'd also like to help share your words and arts as well. So please, let's talk. Follow us on all our socials. And if you're inclined and able, consider supporting our production costs via the support section on the main anchor page. And of course, like, subscribe, share, and smash, whatever the hell that means. And if you want to ask a question on a future episode, or if you want to leave a 60-second poem, just click on the message link on the main podcast page at anchor.fm forward slash emotional orphan and record your question or your poem in a, in a voicemail. You can also find links to our socials, merchandise, and broadsides there as well in all of the uh, episodes of this wonderful podcast. Thanks for coming by and we'll see you next week.